All right, cool. Um, so how many people have read some done before? Um, and you like him. What's not to like? <laughs> um, okay, well, what I did was just for today, um, I brought in uh, three poems. Uh, they're two sheets, so take, um, take two sheets and then hand the pile to the next person. And um, the first thing to say about Dunn um, is if you've read Dunn before, you may have read um, more than one kind of poem by Dunn, or you may not have. That is, um, there are two, uh, two very basic types of poems that Dunn writes. Um, obviously, there's overlap in his style and his interest and in um, the way he thinks. Um, but there are two basic kinds of poems that Dunn writes. This is so oversimplified I could die, but I won't. Um, and one is um, poetry which is um, highly sexualized, um, very irreverent, um, shocking in certain ways. And then there's poetry which is religious um, and um, almost uh, desperate in its needs and longings, but also shocking, and in certain ways shocking um, the way the first um, and often regarded as earlier kinds of poems were. So um, how many people know a poem like The Flea? Is that a poem familiar <clears throat> to people? Um, those of you who are smiling um, at the idea of reading Dunn, what poem, what poem were you thinking of? What's your name? Remind me. Grace. Grace? Um, it was... I've read a couple of uh, his religious poems for poetry basic course and a couple of the like numbered sonnets, I believe. Um, but yeah. I can't remember any names. Okay, so and so you were actually you 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 like the religious poems? I like both of them. They're just intense. They're yeah. always intense. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's certainly um, the, the case about Dunn. We'll also have occasion to read a couple of his sermons um, and his meditations, which are in prose, but you might not know it, um, except that they don't rhyme, but they're very intense also. Um, what about the secular poems? Have other people, can you think of others besides the flea? No? Go and Catch a Falling Star, is that familiar to people? Go and Catch a Falling Star, yeah? I think it was literally called Love Song Yeah. Um, the Good Morrow, yeah. You like that one? Yeah, yeah. Um, Busy Old Fool and Unruly Son. Um, yeah, so um, Dunn will, there's nothing that Dunn is um, afraid to do. He's fearless as a poet. Um, he's not fearless as a person, and some of his poems describe fear, but he's fearless as a poet. Um, he will sometimes write in a woman's voice. Um, he will write about um, all sorts of things. He's sometimes hilarious. He's sometimes very grim. Um, but the one thing he isn't is a wallflower. He's not <laughs> shy. Um, how many people have, does anyone know the poem The Ecstasy? Is that um, at all familiar? Or what about a valediction forbidding morning? Um, okay, well, what I'm 
what I think we'll be doing is spending a fair amount of time on Dunn, who's the greatest of the metaphysicals. Um, he is um, the other metaphysical poet who is close to him in greatness is George Herbert. Um, and so we'll also spend a fair amount of time on Herbert. And um, it's worth seeing both their um, differences and their similarities. Um, Dunn was a friend of Herbert's mother. So Herbert is um, a generation later than Dunn, but knew him when he was growing up um, and admired him intensely. Um, all of um, um, the metaphysical poets um, essentially got their ideas of what to do in poetry from reading um, or from knowing or from hearing Dunn. Um, do people know the term metaphysical poetry? Is that... Um, does anyone not know that term? Um, okay, it's actually a term that was used against them. It's an 18th century um, term that Dr. Johnson, the greatest of 18th century critics, um, used to describe the kind of poetry they wrote. And what he basically said, what he was using the word metaphysical there meant something like, this is not like reading poetry, it's like reading philosophy. Um, and um, what he felt was that um, whatever it is that poetry was supposed to do, um, the me metaphysical poetry didn't. Other people, T.S. Eliot most um, prominently, um, thought that what poetry was supposed to do, that the metaphysical poets figured out another and deeper and more amazing thing for poetry to do um, than had been done before. So T.S. Eliot in the 20th century is the great champion of the metaphysical poets. And they have other great champions, but he is the great champion of the metaphysical poets. Um, those who don't like the metaphysical poets um, think that what's going on here is precisely what poems shouldn't be. Um, Walter Pater, the great 19th century critic, um, very famously said, and huge influence on Oscar Wilde. If you've read Oscar Wilde, you've essentially read Walter Pater, even if you don't know it. Um, what Walter Pater said, a very famous statement of Pater's, is that all art aspires to the condition of music. That is to say that um, the um, transparency and limpidity and just sort of pure um, user-friendliness, to use a very non-musical um, <laughs> phrase, of music, the way it's um, just there for you without your having to do any work, um, to love it. I mean, obviously, some music takes more work than other music, 20th century music in particular, um, but that the sheer plasticity of music, that's what art aspires to, and, that's, and poetry would be the kind of art that aspired to that, that, um, um, that you didn't find you had to overcome any resistance to feel the aesthetic, the word aesthetic means feeling. That's why an anesthetic, um, it blocks feeling. The aesthetic quality of poetry should be something where the feeling comes to you, is delivered to you in the um, least difficult, least friction-filled um, manner. Um, and the metaphysical poets, it's quite the opposite. It takes, sometimes it will take a long time to like a metaphysical poem because it will not be like reading poetry which should just be um, joyous or at least a pleasure at every moment. 
Um, but it will be read like reading Kant or Hegel. Um, and um, now Johnson, Kant and Hegel are after Johnson, but um, that would be our modern equivalent of um, what he was complaining about. Complaining about. He was really thinking it was like reading Aquinas or Aristotle. Um, and um, that view of poetry, that poetry, that hard poetry, that intellectual poetry, that poetry which is hard because of the demands it makes on your working things out intellectually rather than simply giving yourself to the poem. Um, that view of whether that's a, a good or a bad thing has been since the 17th century and even earlier, but in English, um, especially since the 17th century, um, a perennial um, debate, a perennial argument. Um, Dr John Dryden, about 60 years after Dunn, um, uh, decided that he would um, take the satires of Dr. Dunn and versify them, turn them into poetry. Um, so he's basically saying, here's Dunn made into poetry. Um, which is a pretty funny thing to say. Um, Coleridge talked about Dunn he's, um, as someone um, in, in a couple of lines about Dunn that were found in his notebooks after he died. He begins, with Dunn whose muse on dromedary trots wreathe iron pokers into true love knots. So Coleridge, um, who had opinions about everything, as did Johnson, um, basically thought that Dunn was like someone bouncing along on a camel. That's what reading his poems were, were like, was like bouncing along on a camel, a dromedary. Um, and that what he would take is an iron poker, that is something that you poke fire with, um, a, a fireplace implement, um, and read it into a true love knot so that you see this true love knot, but all you're thinking about is just how hard and difficult it was to bend it into the shape that it has. Um, and so that's the difficulty within Dunn, which some people love, as I say, um, some people hate. Those who love it will sometimes love it because the iron poker actually does become a true love knot. That is, once you get the poem, um, you think, wow, it's actually happened. Um, it, t it was hard to get this, but now I get it. Um, others will think um, that it's great because of the um, work and, and um, the, the sheer um, um, exhilaration of the effort that goes into reading done. So some will read Dunn because they actually like reading philosophy, and some will read Dunn because they like the fact that they put the kind of effort that you might put into reading philosophy, into reading the poem, but what you get is not some philosophical conclusion that you disagree with anyhow, <laughs> but suddenly you get a poem. Um, you put that effort into it, and um, it gives you something. And it may give it to you the hard way, but it does give you something. Um, against Dunn in the 17th century, and we'll be reading um, poets of this sort also, against Dunn in the 17th century, the counter-tradition um, is the tradition generally called the Cavalier Poets. Um, and both the metaphysical poets and the Cavalier Poets in some sense derive from the works of Ben Jonson, and we'll be reading some 
the, the poems of Ben Jonson, and we'll be reading some poems by Ben Jonson um, at the start. Um, but the Cavalier poets are poets who are um, just write the um, most wonderful, um, easy, musical, easy to experience poems um, of the time. They're really, really great, and they're very, very different from um, Dunn. There's uh, Robert Herrick is one of the greatest of them. Um, some of you may know Upon Julia's Clothing, um, When As in Silk My Julia Goes, then, well, let me just get it exactly. Um, So, um, when as in silks my Julia goes, then, then, methinks, how sweetly flows the liquefaction of her clothes. Next, when I cast mine eyes and see that brave vibration each way free, oh, how that glittering taketh me. Um, so just that word liquefaction in a sense, is um, a word that describes what the poem is doing. Um, there's Julia, and she's wearing silks, and everything flows. When as in silks my Julia goes, then then methinks how sweetly flows the liquefaction of her clothes. Next, when I cast mine eyes and see that brave vibration each way free, oh, how that glittering taketh me. Um, so Dunn would never write anything like that, and um, Herrick would rarely write anything like Dunn. Um, so um, Herrick is um, probably the greatest of the Cavalier poets. Um, the other poet that we're going to do is Andrew Marvell, um, who is sometimes called the Prince of Minor Poets. That is the greatest minor poet who ever lived. Um, and that's a huge achievement. Um, one thing, this is something, again, that Eliot was um, very interested in, um, was the difference between a minor and a major poet. Um, and in a sense, what you could say about a minor poet, it's a little bit about, what, about the difference people used to see um, probably just, just before your time, but it still may be familiar to you, um, the difference between TV and movies. That is, that a TV show, you knew what you were getting, um, especially if it was a weekly show. You knew what you were getting, and um, you could rely on a TV show, um, especially a really great show, um, to give you something consistent and wonderful and that you just really, really like. Um, whereas with a movie, you don't know what you're getting unless it's part of the series, you know, Friday the 13th, part 80, 83. Um, but with a movie, it's you don't know what you're getting, and it may be, you know, what you hope is that it'll be utterly amazing, um, but it may be just terrible. Um, so until fairly recently, there were very few great TV shows, major TV shows, um, but there were really a lot of good TV shows. That is, that it was a minor visual experience, um, to use those terms, major and minor. That TV was something that um, you could count on, 
Um, if a movie tried to offer you the same pleasure as a TV show, it would be a failure. A movie had to do a lot more than a TV show had to do, but that didn't take at all away from what you expected from TV. Um, so the same is true of minor poetry, you could say. That is a really great minor poet um, isn't revolutionizing what poetry is. That's a way of putting it. That what a major poet does is changes the definition or our expectations about what poetry can do. Um, what a minor poet does is does what poetry can do, and what a good minor poet does is does what poetry can do, what we already know poetry can do, really, really well. And um, what Marvell does is he does what the poetry of the time could do better than anyone. Um, and in this sense, he's the greatest of minor poets ever. The way Eliot puts it is to say that there are those who don't realize that sometimes it's better to be a good poet than a great poet. Um, that, um, as the old saying goes, the best is the enemy of the good. Um, and in the case of Marvell, what you get is something that is just so good um, and doesn't require you to change your mind about what poetry is. It just allows you to feel like, yes, this is what I really, really want from a poem. Um, that that's why people love Marvell as much as they do, um, is that he's giving you what you want in a way beyond anything you could imagine you could have gotten. Um, but it's exactly what you want. Um, it's, it's just what you want from a poem. Um, so we'll be spending a fair amount of time on Marvell. Marvell, um, he's interesting in various ways, but that's basically in, in the simplest um, uh, scheme, um, the different um, uh, kinds of poetic traditions that we're going to be looking at, and we're also going to be looking to some extent at how they interact with each other, how they, how they intertwine with each other. Um, so are there any questions or comments about that? If not, we can um, just start by looking at um, a couple of these metaphysical poems. Okay, so what you have on the first sheet here are um, two of Dunn's holy sonnets. Um, and um, they're both um, pretty great. Let's start with 19. Um, just to give you a sense of what's going on in Dunn. So if you don't remember your no Roman numerals, that would be XIX or CIS, ZIS, something like that, <laughs> XIX. Um, does uh, anyone like reading aloud? <clears throat> Justin, go for it. O to vex me, contraries meet in one. Inconstancy unnaturally hath begot a constant habit that when I would not I change in vows and in devotion. Yeah, I think you have to say, and in devotion. In devotion. <laughs> yes, which is how he would have pronounced it. Okay. At, least what, at least it's permissible when reading the poem. Devotion. Yeah. Okay. I know, I know. I know, right? <laughs> Keep going. As humorous is my contrition. Good. As my <laughs> profane love, and as soon forgot, as riddlingly distempered, cold, and hot, as praying, as mute, as infinite, as none, I durst not view heaven yesterday and today. In prayers and flattering speeches, I court God. 
Tomorrow I quake with true fear of his rod. So my devout fits come and go away like a fantastic ague, save that here, those are my best days when I shake with fear. Great, thank you. Um, so uh, the first thing to note, of course, is that it's a sonnet um, and that it's holy. Um, and uh, what kind of sonnet does anyone know? Does anyone know what that question means? Okay, there are two basic kinds of sonnets in English, um, Shakespearean and Petrarchan. Good. Um, and a Shakespearean sonnet, <coughs> um, which was not invented by Shakespeare, but he's the greatest of Shakespearean sonneteers, perhaps unsurprisingly. Maybe not the greatest of sonneteers. Some people think that... that um, Petrarch is the greatest um, sonnet writer ever. But the greatest of Shakespearean sonneteers is Shakespeare, and the Shakespearean sonnet, of which we'll look at very few, um, has the form of three quatrains um, plus a couplet. That is, a Shakespearean sonnet divides into four parts, three symmetrical parts of three symmetrical four-line stanzas, and then a couplet, which is some... Um, summing up or non-summing up or reversal or change on the three quatrains. Um, a Petrarchan sonnet will always divide into an eight-line and a six-line section. Um, so what's called an octet and a sestet. Um, oct for eight, ses for six. And um, those aren't the only kinds of sonnets that you have in English. Um, there are sonnets that are made up of rhymed couplets, of seven rhymed couplets. Um, but those are the two basic and most frequent sorts of sonnets, or Shakespearean and Petrarchan. Um, Dunn writes in Petrarchan sonnets, and what makes the octet, as far as rhyme scheme goes, is that there's a rhyme scheme that goes through, there's a, se a set of rhymes that go through the first eight lines. So in this case, it's one begot not devotion, Contrition forgot hot none. So you can see that rhyme one rhymes with line eight, line two as one, four, five, and eight rhyme, two, three, six, and seven rhyme with each other. There are four rhymes. Um, for, that is, uh, for each rhyme, there are four words that rhyme um, on each sound. Um, then when you get to the sestet, you get to a different set of rhymes. In this case, there are three different rhyme word, three different rhyme sounds: day, God, and here. Um, day rhyming with away, God with rod, and here with fear. Those six lines will come in all sorts of different orders. Um, so in a Petrarchan sonnet, usually but not always, they'll rhyme a b b a. A, B, B, A for the octet. Um, sometimes you'll get A, B, A, B, A, B, A, B, but that's pretty rare um, because the point is to have both halves of the octet be in a kind of interesting symmetry with each other. So usually it'll be A, B, B, A, A, B, B, A, and then you will usually have a C, a D, and an E rhyme but not necessarily in any particular order. Here, the C, D, E rhyme goes C, D, D, C. So it's got the same structure, you could say, as A, B, B, A, but now it's new rhyme words. Um, C, D, D, C, and then E, E. 
but you could have C, D, E, C, D, E. You could have C, D, E, E, D, C. There are all sorts of different ways that the six um, final lines will, will uh, rhyme. Um, and the major thing about a Petrarchan sonnet is that the first eight lines tend to set up a situation, and then the situation gets resolved more quickly than it's set up in the last six lines. And usually between line eight and line nine, this, I'm just talking about Petrarchan sonnets in general, there's what's called a volta or a turn. That is, um, you have eight lines in which, something, in which something happens, in which the poet says something, and then there's a turn. Um, if you look at sonnet seven, the turn is very, very obvious. Sonnet V, the turn is very, very obvious. Um, we'll get back to Sonnet 19 in a second, but just I'll read it quickly so you can see. At the round earth's imagined corners, blow your trumpets, angels, and arise, arise from death, you numberless infinities of souls, and to your scattered bodies go. All whom the flood did and fire shall o'erthrow all whom war, dearth, age, agues, tyrannies, despair, law, chance hath slain, and you whose eyes shall behold God and never taste death's woe. So all of them should to their scattered bodies go. All these people, um, all this numberless infinities of souls, these numberless infinities of souls, that's the first eight lines, and then line nine begins, but let them sleep. So after beginning, arise, arise, suddenly in line nine, we get as major a turn as you can get in a sonnet. Not arise, arise, but rather let them sleep. So that turn where you go from one direction, in this case, to a complete U-turn, to doing a 180. Um, that's the turn that in one way or another you expect when you get to line nine of a Petrarchan sonnet. Um, we're ready for the sonnet to change directions. Sometimes it doesn't. And when it doesn't, that itself is a kind of meta change. That is like taking a step, like when, when you think there's one more step, um, at the bottom of the staircase, or at the top of the staircase, and there isn't. Um, so you're ready for a change, and it doesn't occur. Um, it just keeps going the same way. That's a change also, or that's a meta change. It's jarring when there isn't one. Um, the more you read them, the more you notice when there isn't a change, just as you do notice when there is a change. Um, so to go back to 19, oh, to vex me, contraries meet in one. Someone paraphrase? Um, Grace. Grace, I have it. Uh, I'm bothered by how this stuff has been adding up. Yeah, <laughs> um, that that um, somehow things that are contrary to each other are in the same single thing. Um, Johnson, when he's complaining, Doctor Johnson, as we always say, in order to identify, in order to make sure you don't think I'm talking about Don Johnson, <laughs> um, Doctor Johnson. Um, talked about the metaphysical poets as yoking images by violence together. That is, um, that what he felt was that the metaphysical poets would take images that would repel each other, 
um, you know, the way, the way um, magnets will repel each other. Um, and that the metaphysical poets would force these things together and would yoke them, would, would make every effort to make imagery that made no sense in um, juxtaposition with, or in adjacency with the other image, that the met metaphysical poets would yoke them by violence together. Um, and well done is saying, yeah, that that's just what he wants to write about, is that sense of vexation, where the X in vex is um, an example of that kind of crisscrossing of things and yet meeting as they crisscross. Um, is he thinking of the letter X as doing that? Yeah, he actually is, but you don't have to think that he is. Um, but you can see how it's vexatious, that there's no calmness here, that, um, that it's almost as though his mind um, is, well, um, do people know what the word excruciating means literally? What does it mean? No. Not <laughs> uh, you know what it means. Um, like in context. Yeah, in context, you know, just awful. Yeah. Um, but um, something is excruciating. Um, no, not like a screw. Yeah. Does it have to do with crucifixion? Yeah. Well, crucifixion is excruciating. It means um, to be pulled um, crossways. Um, so crux is the um, um, etymological background to excruciating. Crux means cross. Crucifixion means being put on the cross. What is excruciating is to be pulled um, in all sorts of different directions. That's to be excruciated. So literally speaking, um, what a crucifixion does is it excruciates its victims. Um, and the letter X is just that cross. Um, and so, oh, to vex me, contraries meet in one. I, I find this excruciating. Um, the idea of vexation um, in a poem, that actually is something that Wordsworth and Coleridge will pick up, perhaps from Dunn. But that's excruciating. Oh, to vex me, contraries meet in one. And then he explains um, an example of this. Inconstancy unnaturally hath begot a constant habit. Um, so unnaturally inconstancy hath begot a constant habit. Um, just paraphrase that. If you can, you may he may need to unpack it for you to paraphrase it right, but try to paraphrase that. Inconstancy hath begot a constant habit. Unnaturally hath begot a constant habit. I've found some regularity in doing irregular things or doing things irregularly. Yeah, that my own inconstancy, and that's what he's talking about. Uh, what's the moral force of a word like inconstancy? Uh, unfaithful. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. It, what it means is unfaithfulness. That is, that um, it's not what it can sometimes mean, which is, which is something like, you know, there's an inconstant flickering of the light. And that would be um, um, a good description of firelight. In fact, it's Shelley's description of firelight, um, that firelight flickers inconstantly. And we don't say, oh, firelight, you can't trust it. <laughs> um, that's a purely descriptive use of the word. 
Um, but if it's not purely descriptive, if it has any kind of metaphorical um, force, um, then what it means is something like unfaithfulness. Dunn uses that word. That is, um, uh, constancy is a sign of faithfulness, especially in marriage. Um, constancy is what you vow to your spouse. That um, that means you won't um, betray them um, if you show them perfect constancy. And in religion, it means um, um, perfect faith to God. Um, Dunn is using it both descriptively and morally simultaneously. Um, that is to say, what he's saying is um, inconstancy, which is my own, I guess, if you, let's, let's, let me ask it this way, because I think this is actually an important thing to see that Dunn is doing. Let's say that you were a minister or a priest, um, like Dunn himself um, later in life, um, and you accused someone, one of your parishioners, of inconstancy. Um, what would you be accusing them of? Being habitually inconstant. Being habitually inconstant. Yeah. Not like constantly. I mean, constantly. <laughs> yeah, but if you were using it as in the moral sense, um, or if you use it, um, use it in the moral sense of. of of, um, you know, let's just say in a divorce court, you know, I want to be divorced from you because you've been inconstant. Um, what, you know, unpack that. Un what does that really unfaithful? mean? Unfaithful. Unfaithful. Yeah. Now, they're not quite the same thing because inconstancy used literally means that you go back and forth, whereas used morally, it tends to mean you betrayed what you were doing and you've simply gone the other way. So inconstancy used in its most literal um, its most literal meaning has a sense of fitfulness, sometimes faithful, sometimes not. Sometimes a believer, sometimes not. But used morally, it tends to mean you said you would be faithful, but you've turned away. You said that you would believe in God, but you've turned away. Um, so there's a kind of um, hope in the idea of inconstancy um, on one reading of it, in one interpretation of that word, and a kind of um, pure um, rebuke in another meaning of the word. Um, if you are inconstant about, um, let's say, giving money to the poor, it means, well, I should give more money to the poor, but I do it sometimes. But if you're, in, if you're an inconstant lover, it means that you're just not showing love to the person that you're supposed to love. Um, that if you really love them, um, you wouldn't betray them. Um, so that actually matters for Dunn. Because to say that inconstancy unnaturally hath begot, begot a constant habit, what he's saying is... I'm going back and forth rather than simply being a sinner. In other words, if you were purely evil, Dunn's use of the word inconstancy, he's hoping would not apply. That a purely evil person 
couldn't be accused of inconstancy, they would have to be accused of pure betrayal. Now, that's not the standard use of the word inconstancy. Um, it's, it's a little bit um, catching at a straw. Um, but it's the straw that saves him in the poem. Um, is your hand up? No, no. Sorry. Okay, that's okay. Um, so the idea here is something like, I'm using the word inconstancy, which is me um, rebuking myself, me angry at myself for the fact that um, I keep showing faithlessness to God, but I'm also going to try to use that word um, for its hopeful as well as for its negative connotations. The hopeful connotations mean, being that I go back and forth um, rather than that I'm simply evil. Do people see the, see the subtle difference there? But it's a, it, the subtle differences for Dunn are always the ones that matter. So inconstancy unnaturally hath begot a constant habit. That is, you wouldn't think that inconstancy would lead to constancy, but it does, unnatural as that is. And here's that habit, that when I would not, I change in vows and in devotion. That is, I make a New Year's resolution to love God and to be religious and not to um, think about um, sex or money or power or ambition or whatever. Um, I decide I'm really going to concentrate on God now. I don't want to do anything else, and yet I change in vows. My vows don't stay constant, so I'm constantly being inconstant. I change in vows and in devotion, or in devotion. Um, I can't stay focused. So um, it's as though my whole mind has a focus, which is its inability to focus. As humorous is my contrition as my profane love and as soon forgot. Um, so when I feel contrition, what is, do people know what contrition means? Remorse. Um, in fact, in religious terminology, it's more than remorse. Um, remorse leads to contrition, um, but they're certainly on a continuum. So, and what does the word humorous mean there? Is it like the four humors? Yeah. Like moody? As moody, exactly. As, as constantly, as, as moody, as constantly changing as moods are. So my contrition, which is I made a vow to be constant to God. I felt bad that I hadn't been constant before. My inconstancy is in fact a kind of record of um, the way I keep vowing to be devoted to God, keep breaking that vow, and keep vowing that I'm not going to break that vow anymore, and keep breaking that vow. Um, inconstancy now becomes a word which means just that, means I try to resist my inconstancy, and then I fail, but I don't just fail. My failure makes me try to resist my inconstancy again, because I feel bad about it, I feel contrition, but then I fail again. So I keep feeling contrite, and, but my contrition 
keeps um, being so moody that I stop being contrite. I vow I'm not. I'm going to stay contrite. I don't stay contrite. So I do stay contrite because I'm contrite about the fact that I'm not contrite. And now I vow I'm going to be contrite about the fact that I'm not contrite. But I stop being contrite about that. So I feel contrite about it. And so on. So I'm just constantly going back and forth. Um, so as humorous as my contrition, I'm just as moody and changeable in my contrition as my profane love. What does that mean? Yeah, I'm as bad as when um, I have fantasies about women or when I think I love a woman, but then um, I start thinking about other things um, or other people. And I'm as bad with God as I am with women. As humorous <coughs> is my contrition, is my profane love. And the very fact that he's thinking about his profane love is showing how he's being inconstant. He's supposed to be addressing God. Um, and he remembers and also rebukes himself for thinking about sex as he's supposed to be addressing God. As humorous as my contrition, is my profane love, and as soon forgot. Just as I see a woman and think, boy, I'd like to have sex with her, and then I forget her, I think, yes, I'm going to devote myself to God now, and then I see a woman and think, boy, I'd like to have sex with her. Um, so um, it's all going back and forth. As riddlingly distempered, that is constantly changed, it's a riddle why that happens, cold and hot, as praying, as mute. Um, so sometimes I'm praying, sometimes I'm mute. Um, as infinite, as none. So um, my contrition is as humorous as my profane love, as soon forgot, as riddlingly distempered, um, changed in temperature, you could say, made cold, made hot. Um, as praying, so sometimes my contrition is as praying as my profane love. So is that the kind of prayer you want to give to God, the same kind of prayer you give to a woman when you're saying, come on, please, please, um, to quote Spike Lee's She's Gotta have, it, Gotta have It, please, baby, please, baby. Is that how you want to be talking to God? Um, that's part of the problem, too. Um, man, I really got to have it. Please, baby. Um, he says to God. Um, as mute, which is tongue-tied. So should he really be thinking about God the way he thinks about a woman? Um, well, the answer is yes or no. You can imagine rebuking him either way. Like, if you gave one-tenth of the love you give to this person you just saw across the room to God, you might be saved. Um, but, oh, man, I love God just the way I have a crush on that person. Um, you'll also be rebuked for saying that. So as mute, that is your tongue-tied. Um, as infinite as none. Like you're beside yourself with love. It's over in a minute. <laughs> um, I durst not view heaven yesterday. So now we, it's almost as though here in the Volta, in the eighth line, he's talking about a particular day. Yesterday I couldn't even, I didn't dare even look up to God. I durst not view heaven yesterday. And today in prayers and flattering speeches, I court God. Um, so I'm constantly changing, and I know myself. Tomorrow, I quake 
with true fear of his rod. So yesterday I couldn't look up in heaven. Today I court him by flattering in prayers, but also in flattering speeches, which kind of undercuts the idea of prayer there because it's the prayer you would make to a king, not the prayer you would make to God. Tomorrow I quake with true fear of his rod. So my devout fits come and go away like a fantastic ague. Um, do people know what ague means? It means an illness, and in particular, it implies, it's usually, it's often used as a synonym for cold or bad cold, um, but it particularly implies a fever, that is chills. Um, you know, how when you have a fever, no matter how warm it is, you're shivering and chilled, um, which is a good sign that you have a fever. Um, that's what he means, so that um, my devout fits come and go away like a fantastic ague, so he's shaking um, with the chills. Um, so those, so, um, that's what he's been saying about the whole poem, and then there's going to be the good part of inconstancy, save that here, those are my best days, whereas you would think the days that you have a chill, that you're sick, are your worst days, but he's saying the difference is this, save that here, in this context, those are my best days when I shake with fear. That is, shaking with fear, that's a good thing. That's when I'm closest to belief in God. Um, and so that paradox, that it's good to be sick, which is essentially what he's saying, um, that's what Kierkegaard later will call the sickness unto death, um, that it's good to recognize that you're sick, to shake with this chill, you know, chill in our modern sense of, both, not in our very modern sense of chill, but in our modern sense of both um, cold um, and, you know, chiller theater. That is something that it's frightening. Um, so that we do use, or used to use, the word um, thrills and chills. Um, where chills there doesn't mean, well, it's thrilling, except I was a little cold. Um, what thrills and chills means, it was thrilling, and I shook, it was so thrilling and scary. Um, so it looked like I had a chill, but it was fear. Um, that's Dunn's um, uh, metaphor also. That is that um, you're sick and, and shaking with that illness, but that illness is that you're not sure of God's love and not, you're not sure that your love of God is sufficient to get God's love back. Um, but what he does there is he saves inconstancy. He says, in constancy, it's all unnatural. It's a paradox. Oh, to vex me, contraries meet in one. He ends the poem with a paradox. Those are my best days when I shake with fear. But what had been a paradox which was bad, I'm inconstant, becomes a paradox that's good at the end. Those are my best days when I shake with fear. And the point is that he's managed to change the fact that inconstancy is vexing him into a good sign or a good thing or a good situation or a good outcome from where it began as a bad sign or situation or outcome. That is, the short version of this sonnet is 
I am completely vexed by my experience of inconstancy, and that's a good thing because it means that that vexation means that I'm afraid of God. If I didn't believe in God, I wouldn't be inconstant. I would be a, simply a constant sinner. So inconstancy here becomes the proof that he believes and leads to that final um, contrary. Best days are those when I shake with fear. And that's typical of how Dunn will move, is that he will take something that is um, a, a strong contrary, a strong paradox, a strong opposition. And he will um, look at what it means to put A and not A together. And you know, we could schematize this poem like this. A contrary in logic is you assert both P and not P. Um, it is raining, but it's not raining. And that's contradiction. So a contrary is something very, very close to a contradiction. Um, so you start with a contrary, and you say something like, I believe, but I don't believe. And the result is you're afraid that you don't believe, and that even your belief is just a sign of not believing, that you're trying but failing. I believe, or I want to believe, but I don't believe. If I believe but don't believe, it means I don't really believe. And then you spend 13 lines worrying ferociously about that. And then that turns into the fact that I'm worrying so much about the insufficiency of my belief means that I really care. And that itself means that I don't disbelieve. That those good days come, those best days come, when I shake with fear because I so want to believe, which I would only want to do if I did believe. Now, what happens there is there's self-analysis going on. And there's a huge amount of self-analysis in the metaphysical poets. Um, that's something that is not brand new, but fairly new to English poetry. Um, that is a sense that you get in these poems that the very thinking that's going on in the poem is thinking that the poem is thinking about, that the poet is thinking about the way he, or occasionally she in the period, um, is thinking in the lines that we're reading. Um, Dunn's poems, um, Herbert's poems, uh, Johnson's poems a little bit less, but, but still very much so. Um, those poems are self-aware. And they're aware of, um, well, it, it, Sonnet 7 is a good example of that. I already read it once, or re at least read the first eight lines. Does someone want to read the whole thing? Someone not just even want to read the whole thing? I will pick at random. Okay, um, remind me. Taylor? Taylor. At the round earth's imagined corners blow your trumpets, angels, and arise, arise from death, your numberless infinities of souls, and to your scattered bodies go, all whom the flood did, and 
fire shall overthrow all whom war, dearth, age, agues, tyrannies, despair, law, chance hath slain, and you, whose eyes shall behold God, and never taste death, death's woe. But let them sleep, Lord, in the morning space, for if above all these my sins abound, tis late to ask abundance of thy grace when we are there. Here on this lowly ground, teach me how to repent, for that's as good as if thou hast sealed my pardon with thy blood. Thank you. Um, all right. Uh, just both basic and less basic things. Um, why the corners of the world? Anyone know where that comes from? Yeah. Yeah. It's from Revelations? Um, or somewhere in the Bible? Yeah, it's actually from the Gospels. Um, this is, if people tell you that the Bible is literally true, that's one reason that real fundamentalists, of whom there are like none left, um, believe the earth is flat um, with corners, because um, when Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness, he showed him the four corners of the world. That's what it says. Um, in the Synoptic Gospels, that he showed Jesus, he took him, put him on a high place and showed him the four corners of the world. And so if you're a completely literal reader of the New Testament, you think the world has corners. Um, now, no one thinks that. No one reading that anymore thinks, oh, yeah, everyone knows it's a metaphor. But it wasn't thought to be a metaphor when it was written. The idea was that God really did see the whole square, or Jesus really did see the whole square world. Um, that the world was square and flat, not like a pancake, but like a slice of Sicilian pizza, um, and thin crust. Um, and um, Dunn is immediately saying, no, these are imagined corners, the world is round. So he's saying, um, I know the physics, I know the astronomy, which he did. He was really interested in um, whether there was life on other planets, for example, which was a question that was coming up in the 17th century um, because of Galileo and his telescope. Um, whether there was life on other planets, he knew the world was round. But he's also um, expressing intense belief in what matters in the biblical story. So um, that first line at the round earth's imagined corners, there's a whole lot in that line about the history of knowledge and the history of science um, and its relation to religious belief. Um, that Dunn, you know, basically deals with in, um, in eight words. Um, and it is eight words, yay. Um, and um, that's very impressive. But at the rounders, imagined corners. And partly what he gets to do is he gets to talk, you know, talk about the intensity of imagining in this poem. So the rounders, imagined corners, blow your trumpets, angels. So when will they do that? Sorry? When he commands them to? When he commands them to, but it's more like he's praying that they should do it. So according to the Bible, when will at Gabriel... The at the apocalypse. So what's going to happen is when the apocalypse comes, um, Gabriel and the other arch archangels will blow their trumpets to awaken the dead. That's why you sometimes hear... You know, so noisy, it could have woken the dead. Um, so according to what book of the Bible? The last one. Which is called? Revelation. Uh, what did you, wait, say it again. Revelation. 
Okay. And what did you say, Grace? I the same thing. No, you didn't. What did you say? I said revelation. No, See? No, you didn't. Well, you, you pluralized it. Yes. Oh. Yes. I know this so well because my son's on quiz team, sort of like oh. a college ball, but for high school. And um, that's the standard wrong answer is to say revelations. And they say, I'm sorry. And the other team says, revelation. And then my son's team loses. <laughs> uh, so... Um, yeah, it's singular. It's the revelation of the end of the world. Um, the ap- apocalypse actually means revelation. A lot of people don't know this. They think, oh, no, apocalypse means, you know, nuclear bombs going all over. But apocalypse actually means the, um, um, the unveiling of what's hidden, the revealing. And what's, it turns out what's hidden is explosions and violence <laughs> everywhere. And that's why we talk about apocalypse as though it's violence, but it literally means revelation. It's the Greek word of which revelation is the Latin word. Um, was your hand up? Um, I was just saying, it doesn't, you just said it, never mind. You just said it, you. Okay, all right. Um, so at the round earth's imagining corners, blow your trumpets, angels. And when they do that, what will happen? The dead will waken. And arise, arise from death you numberless infinities of souls, and to your scattered bodies go. A very powerful idea, so that the souls will arise from death as well as the bodies. Um, So the idea is that at the last judgment, um, what happens is the angels blow their trumpets, all the dead awaken, and they go to be judged by God. Some to to be sent to heaven, and most to go to hell forever. Um, so that's what he wants to happen. He wants the revelation to come. He wants the apocalypse to come. He wants um, the end of times to come. Um, and for um, the last judgment to occur and for the resurrection of all living beings, not only the resur- resurrection of Christ, which occurs in the Gospels, but the resurrection of all the dead. So. Um, numberless infinities of souls will arise from death and to your scattered bodies go. Um, Scattered because their bodies are everywhere, but scattered also because the bodies get scattered, which is something that that he is interested in a lot of his poems. That is, the idea that the dead will awaken um, somehow requires that corpses not be corruptible. Um, but Dunn knows that um, by now, by the 17th century, it's well known. Um, a whole lot of the biological cycle is well known. That is, you probably know, I don't think they knew this, but you probably know that every breath you take, um, you're breathing in some of Julius Caesar's last breath. Um, that is, he exhaled when he died and there were enough oxygen molecules in his breath that after 2,000 years, um, they're basically evenly distributed in the atmosphere so that there are a whole bunch of them in every breath that anyone takes. Um, Bodies are shared. Your bodies are, not only are you stardust, which is all great, yay, we're stardust, that's so nice, Um, but you're also made up of the corpses of billions of people who've come before you. Um, yeah. So is that, is that doctrinal that souls would be reunited with their bodies? Well, it's um, there's there are a whole lot of questions about what happens to the soul after you die, and this seems to be um, Dunn seems to be at least toying here with a heresy called mortalism, 
which is the idea that, the, that souls die until the second coming. Um, the more standard or general view was that um, souls went to wherever they went and then um, uh, to heaven or to um, hell. Hell, um, Dunn didn't believe in purgatory. Um, and then when the bodies re-arose, the souls uh, would return to them. Um, but the mortalist view, which Dunn is at least playing with here, um, and which a lot of people held, was that souls were in um, complete unconsciousness until the last judgment. Um, and that was something that was being much discussed at the time. Um, so the answer is everything is doctrinal and nothing is doctrinal. You can find, you can find a doctrine for everything at this time in the 17th century. Um, uh, partly because of the Protestant Revolution and all the different um, uh, modes of Protestantism, um, and it was it was much on Dunn's mind, um, and he you know he had his own doctrine. One thing that he did was he wrote um, a very famous treatise um, on the legality of suicide, on the religious legality of it. Um, he thought suicide was okay, whereas in Catholic doctrine, suicide is the unpardonable sin. If you guys read um, Ethan Brand, um, who was looking for the unpardonable sin, um, generally in, in Catholic doctrine, you know, there's, so it's about this character who wants to know, what is the unpardonable sin because I wish to commit it? Um, mm -hmm. What is the one unpardonable sin that God will never pardon? And there are lots of theories about this. You know, what's the unpardonable sin? Is it murder? No, because murderers have been pardoned. Look at King David. Um, is it blasphemy? Well, people have blasphemed but then regretted it. Is it apostasy? That is um, where what apostasy is, is um, you don't believe in the true God, and then you do. So it's not disbelief. But it's going from belief to rejection of your own belief. Maybe that's the unpardonable sin, except there have been apostates who've then come back to the fold. And there's the story of the prodigal son. So one theory is that the unpardonable sin is suicide because you can't repent it. Um, that is, suicide is a sin against God and the Holy Ghost. You die when you die, and all the rest is violence. But unlike any other sin, you have no chance to repent suicide because you're dead. Um, but Dunn writes a treatise on behalf of the legality of suicide um, and why it may sometimes be the right thing to do. Um, so there's all sorts of doctrinal ferment at the time. Um, so um, he's calling upon all the numberless infinities of souls to go to their scattered bodies. Who, which souls? All whom the flood did. That is Noah, all the, all the near total destruction of humanity with Noah's flood. All whom the flood did, and fire shall o'erthrow, because there'll never be a flood again. That's what the rainbow means, right? Everyone knows the story of Noah and the rainbow. That the reason there's a rainbow in heaven is it's God's covenant never to drown the earth again. Um, he did it once, and... Now, at least that's not going to happen. Um, there's actually some very interesting accounts of the rainbow as, as signs of fear and evil. That is, yeah, God is saying, I won't, but I could. Um, so when you see a rainbow, you should remember that. Um, all whom the flood did in fire shall o'erthrow, because the end of the world will come in fire. Um, all whom war 
dearth, that is hunger. Age, agues, meaning sickness, good. Tyrannies, despair, law, law. So despair, that would be suicide. Law, that would be execution, maybe. Chance hath slain. Um, anything odd about the word hath? Yes. Okay, no, it does personify chance, sure. Um, say it. Isn't half? Yeah. This may be totally wrong. Isn't no, you're it right. usually used in, in not in the past and the future? Oh, no, no, no. It's, it's past. It means, ha it means like, you know, I have done this, he hath done it. It's, it's pretty synonymous. In fact, it's exactly synonymous with has. Um, has is probably just um, the th as ths frequently do turning into an s, as in the poem by Herrick, um, when as in silks my Julia goes, then then methinks um, one chiefly knows the liquefaction of her clothes. So the th in clothes rhymes with goes and knows because th really very easily slips into s in the history of languages. If you want to if you want to figure out um, a language that you don't know. Um, TH to S is a frequent elision. Um, so hath really means has. So what if you do it as has? All who wore dearth, age, agues, tyrannies, despair, law, chance, has slain. That's what it would be in modern English. What's wrong with has? Well, no, it's... it's yeah, you can say slew, but it's grammatically wrong, or it feels grammatically wrong. What should it be? Have. 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 Yeah, it's, it should be a plural verb. Hath is a singular verb. Okay, so that's not familiar to you, but it is to Dunn's audience that he has a singular verb here, not a plural, and that's worth noticing. Um, he has a singular verb because what that then means is that ch it, it may just be that, that it's um, a kind of thing that happens, but just notice that you hear it as wrong if I read it as has. All whom war, dearth, age, agues, tyrannies, despair, law, chance, has slain. And you would think, no, it should really be have slain. So it's marked as odd. Um, I think what it means is that all of these things are, all of them are chance. You know, all whom age, fear, agues, well, you know, chance. That's what all those things are. Death is random. Chance is the word that sums up all the previous words. Okay, we'll start here. Yeah. Then why would it say chance? Well, because, it, because um, what he's saying is all of this is chance. Oh, he's not talking about like accidental death? He's saying all death is accidental. Oh. That however you die... Um, it's that's the accident that is inevitable. It's another contrary. If you're a living being, you're going to die in some way that is unnatural because all natural death is unnatural because something happens to you and you die. If you're alive, that'll happen. You know, we go around thinking, well, at least we won't be murdered, but we don't know that. Um, it's all going to happen um, in some way or other that seems like, why did that have to happen? But it's just chance that he died. 
but however he dies, it'll feel like just chance, and yet he will die. And I think that singular has a little bit of that summing up war, age, dearth, achings, tyranny, um, and so a law, tyr- and so on. All of that is just one way or another, chance is going to get you. Um, meaninglessness is going to get you. Um, death will be meaningless. All right, we meet again on Friday. I will send you um, at least the beginning of a syllabus, and, um, but bring back the done also, and we'll finish talking about um, this poem and, may, and probably the Herbert poem on the back sheet. Thank you.